0: Hey everybody, it's me, Evgeny. Before we start today's interview, I want to let you know about an event later this year, which, if you're into this podcast, will be right up your alley. It's called Data Center World and it's scheduled for August 16th in Orlando, Florida. Data Center World is the leading conference and expo for data center and IT infrastructure professionals. It's the only industry event that delivers exclusive state of the data center research findings, in-depth workshops, 50-plus conference sessions, keynotes from industry luminaries, the largest offering of data center technology solutions, and unlimited networking opportunities. Find out more about the event and register at www.datacenterworld.com. That's www.datacenterworld.com. Hope to see you there! Hey everybody, welcome to the Data Center Podcast. My name is Yevgeny. I'm Editor-in-Chief at Data Center Knowledge. Today with us, we have Alan Malden. He is Research Director at Telegeography. Telegeography is a research company that tracks the global telecommunications market. Alan has spent the last two decades studying the global communications infrastructure, and that includes terrestrial networks and submarine cables. Alan, thank you for agreeing to talk with me today.
1: Hey, very happy to be here.
0: If you've ever searched for any kind of information about submarine cables on the internet, one of the first things you came across was the submarine cable map. It's literally just that. A map of the world's existing submarine cables and the ones in the works, beautifully put together and available absolutely free online. I've spent many, many hours with the map over the years. It's answered many questions in my reporting work. Alan. Maybe we can start with you telling us how the map came into being.
1: Yes, yeah, so we are definitely very well known for our uh, map of the world's uh, sub, sub, subsea cables. And we started this map about, you know, over 20 years ago, which was a paper map. We sold copies of it on our on our website. but We now have a, a interactive version we've had for over a decade now, which is uh, available at uh, SubmarineCableMap.com. And there you can see, as you mentioned, you know, all the active cables, the planned cables, uh, who owns the cables. And other facts about about the cable. So um, that's definitely a very popular thing that we we offer, um, and it is uh, uh, you know leads into uh, more of what we offer at the company, which is more of uh, market r- research focused on subsea cables, but also data centers, corporate networks, IP back- backbones, and many other other areas.
0: And um, I'm sure other similar maps exist, but they probably cost a lot of money to access. Uh, why do you guys offer it for free so is is it is it sort of uh, like content marketing
1: so by having the map for free it's a it's, it's a service that allows us to present data that we've been gathering to to the public um and it's it's just freely available for anybody to, to see um if you want to get the exact locations of cables the physical routes they take you're definitely correct there are paid services where you can get the 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 depth of the cable the type of cable all these different uh you know m- metrics but that is a very expensive thing to offer. So we're we're offering, you know, the basic, you know, which countries connect, which ones, who owns it, uh, the year it's going to be in service, thing, things like this.
0: Yeah, which is probably enough for for a casual submarine cable um, enthusiast. The world of submarine cables ha- has been going through a lot of changes in recent years, thanks to hyperscale platforms getting into the space. Let's start with Google. They were the first to get in in this way. That's um, right. Tell us some, give us some background. How did how did they get involved and why?
1: Sure. So you know, many of these hyperscale companies or content providers, whatever you want to call them, you know, they they've had they have very large demands for international capacity, and so for years they were uh, buying capacity in the market from the tr- traditional carriers, right? But at some point they were growing so fast and becoming so large, it made sense to actually move to the different to a different layer and opt to invest directly in in submarine cable systems themselves so google was the first one as you mentioned with their investment in the unity cable which entered service in 2010 and since then you've seen uh, them uh, invest in in many other cables around the world Uh, one was launched just uh, the last this last week the do not cable from uh, france to the united states and they are involved in many other planned cables Uh, so besides google uh, you know facebook also is a very heavy investor in new cables uh, also Amazon and Microsoft, to a smaller extent, also are investing um, directly in owning uh, submarine cables.
0: And and these big cloud platforms, they sort of changed the, the model, the old model of how these cables were funded, uh, how these projects that are very expensive, they cost hundreds of millions of dollars, how they came together. Um, explain how the old model of Carrier consortium um, building cables worked.
1: Sure. So in the, in the old days, cables were originally just built by a consortium of the really the largest carriers in, in in each country, and they would invest on the basis of how much capacity they wanted to have for their own own internal use. That was, that was for voice calls, right? It was voice traffic. It was very easy to to, to predict in the old days. Um, those type of things. Um, in the late 90s, you saw the the introduction of more of a private cable model. Companies like Global Crossing, um, you know, an in, in infamous company perhaps, but one of the companies that, that got started in building privately owned cables and then offering the capacity to to carriers and others on a wholesale basis. Um, after the, the telecom bubble exploded, kind of in the early part of the two, 2000s, we have seen really a continuation. Of both models. You do see private cables being built on some routes where one party is the sole investor but you also see consortiums but often smaller off smaller con- con- consortia rather. Um, the difference is now those consortia don't just include carriers they also include increasingly content providers and these content providers are often uh, con- consuming now the majority of the investment in the cable. So Clearly for new cables to, to, to be built on many routes, they are relying heavily on having the, the backing and the financing of content providers.
0: And then weren't uh, in the old model, and maybe this is still happening, weren't, weren't some some public money also involved in these older model consortia? Did the governments invest as well together with the telcos? Or did they get that completely wrong?
1: Um, so governments do play a role really in helping uh, more remote communities to build cables. So if it's an island in the South, South Pacific, or some remote communities in the Arctic right now. There is some government involvement there, but largely it's a private, um, it's, it's it's private funding that is being used to build and fund submarine cables around the world.
0: So, so with all these hyperscalers um, now investing in their own slices of these new cables, right? And these are they're not in like Facebook or Microsoft will not fund the entire cable on their own, right? And and just have it to themselves. They they invest and um, as you said, they're they invest kind of the bulk of the money oftentimes, and then they get a, a slice, some bandwidth on that cable, some capacity. Um, so with, with this money, uh, with this in new influx of money into the market, how many cables approximately have been built in the last 10 years with hyperscaler backing?
1: Yeah, so in the last decade, content providers um, have invested, you know, roughly about uh, $20 billion in new cables, really all over the world, And um, that's probably about, you know, 20, 30 cables that they've invested in. And there's many more planned for the coming years. Um, You know, I I think looking at, you know, from what's planned to be deployed this year and the next two years, we could see another maybe $8 billion worth of, of investment from content providers coming in. Now, it's important. Remember, they aren't the only ones investing in new cables. So, you know, overall... There's, there's going to be an even larger amount of investment coming. The content provider's share of investment, let's say for these, for you know, uh, the next couple of years, is going to be about 30 to 50% of the overall total. But on certain routes, such as the Atlantic or the Pacific, there's a much higher concentration of content, content provider investment. And that's really due to where they're trying to link, which is their largest data centers in Europe and Asia back to the United States.
0: So let's talk about uh, maybe the effects of these players coming into the market, other than the, in just pure amount of investment, amount of, of activity. Uh, what other changes um, have they caused in the submarine cable market?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think one of the most important things we're seeing right right now really is that they're they are having you know, a large influence in determining where cables land. And so they are helping to shift cables to sometimes locations where cables previously had not gone. So we've seen new cables between the west coast of Ireland and the United States from Denmark to the, to the US, which is heavily focused again on where they have their data centers and how they want to configure the cables to most directly connect those data centers to each other. The other thing I wanted to say about their impact is in technology and how they are really pushing The envelope in terms of how much capacity we can fit down a single cable
0: and i want to come back to the technology part a bit later how has the nature of the cable landing itself uh, changed the place where submarine cable comes ashore and upstream from there um, how has that changed under the influence of the hyperscalers
1: sure yeah so there's been a there's been a shift i guess over the last decade or so to not just have a cable come ashore and basically stop in a cable station on a beach have the terminal equipment there, there's really been a push to extend the cable inland directly to a data center or multiple data centers um, in, in, in a country where the cable lands. So in, in this way you do have a cable station where there's maybe a power feed, but the, 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 the terminal equipment is actually in a data center where customers can most directly access capacity on that that, that cable. And this was driven not not just purely by content providers, but by carriers as well, who were very keen to you know make the service as easy as possible um, to interconnect with other others um, on, on, on land and with other 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 cables as well.
0: Since there are new places where cables land, and uh, oftentimes cable landing plays a role in data center site selection by hyperscalers and others too, by colo providers, by. By carriers. So has this hyperscaler trend put new places on the map in kind of the the global communications slash IT infrastructure?
1: You know, you know, part of part of where they are putting the data centers are also where there is also a lot of users as well. So places like you know, Singapore, for example, is a major hub for data centers, also large users, a lot of cables land there. Uh, the cables have have been there, you know, for a, a, a long time. Something nothing new about that being a hub for for, for submarine cables. Um, in terms of newer locations, new emerging hubs, um, I'm I'm not, I can't think of any place where a, a a a content provider has single-handedly created a a new hub for cables by themselves. Um, but we do see the development of of new hubs throughout the world, and it really has a synergy of you know, the content provider element. Um, IXs, data centers, and cables. So one good example of this is Marseille in France where um, you know years ago that was just a, a transit point. Cables would just kind of go from Mar- land in Marseille and it would just shoot straight up to, to, to Paris or the rest of Europe. But now Marseille has you know tons of data data centers there, lots of cables land there, um, you know lots of content is actually in Marseille, it's not just in other parts of Europe. So. That's where you've seen the creation of a of a new hub, which um, you know, the is very clear, clearly focused on the role of cables to to help to drive and develop that 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 location.
0: And there's a very interesting story, um, Marseille. And it was um, interaction, what now owned by owned by Digital Realty, right? And they yes. kind of they were early on in getting data centers there, and they became kind of the gatekeeper to that um, to to those cables. And they built, they built out, right? They, they converted this old uh, World War II German submarine um, base, submarine bunker that they, they, now it's, now it's a giant data center. Hyperscalers have pushed, as you mentioned, a lot of innovation of the cable technology itself. Uh, What have been the biggest innovations they spurred?
1: Um, As as I mentioned before, you know, why they're building cables is they really have the most demand and the fastest growing demand on, on many routes. And so for content providers, from, from their point of view, cables are a big cost for their business. So they want to lower the cost as much as possible on a unit basis, which means trying to increase the capacity of the cable as much as you possibly can. So what this is, is, is leading to right now, as we are seeing, is the, the, the development of uh, SDM cables, which have a, really have a higher fiber pair count. So cables used to have, you know, between four to eight fiber pairs in them, now we're seeing 12, like the do not cable has, I mentioned earlier. Soon we're gonna see 16 every pair of cables, and there's plans for you know, 20, 24 beyond that. So um, those are gonna allow uh, the operators to you know, have a massive amount of capacity on a single cable, but also to massively reduce the cost per bit that capacity as well.
0: So economies of scale, uh, the more capacity. Because it costs about the same to deploy it, right? You need uh, the ships and operating the ship and and laying it. uh, All that costs about the same.
1: The cost to maintain a cable also is not based on how high the capacity is, but on how long it is. Hmm. How many kilometers of cable have to be, uh, you know, guarded and and protected and have ships ready to go out and fix the cable.
0: But is there any kind of regular maintenance that happens along the entire length of the cable? throughout the years or is this just uh, just a matter of like being able to access any part of it when something happens
1: maintenance does happen from time to time on, on cables but the, the the primary reason that there are you know uh, a fleet of ships available to uh, go out and fix cables is that cables do tend to break you know fairly often uh, usually you don't hear, hear anything about it at all um, but it's very important to have ships ready to go out as fast as possible to fix the cables.
0: A lot of the cables currently in the ocean are pretty old. When do they generally reach end of life, and what happens then?
1: Yeah, this is becoming a bigger issue in the industry right now. So, as I mentioned earlier, you know a lot of cables were built in this telecom boom time, the early part of the, of the 2000s, and these cables were able to expand expand their their capacity drastically over the years, from you know 10 gigabit per second wavelengths to now 100 gigabit per second wavelengths. That's been that's been great. Um, but there's really been a need in the last few years to go beyond these older cables, which are still very useful and valuable, but go to higher capacity cables to really refresh some of the, of the cables on many of these, these routes. So right now you're seeing, you know, a large number of new cables built really all over the world, and it's part of trying to refresh and replace these older cables. Now, the older cables, you know, cables are designed with a minimum design life of 25 years. That's a like a rough engineering glut. It's not a magical number that a cable doesn't fall apart when it's 25 years old and stop working. It's, it's designed to last at least that long. So what often happens though is a cable um, can be turned off before that date if it becomes too expensive relative to other cables on that path on a unit cost basis. So a cable that has only let's say a terabit of capacity could be very expensive. if It's an older one compared to a new one that's offering maybe uh, 40, 40 terabits, right? So at some point it's too expensive to keep it going and you turn it off. Also though, you can't keep a cable running well past 25 years. If it's a route that has less, less demand, fewer cables are on that route. Um, and you can keep adding capacity to an older cable. Why not do it?
0: And so, and so once they, once they do go out of service, they just, they just get pulled out and all the equipment along with it or what happens?
1: That's right. The cables tend to be uh, uh, salvaged. Ships go out and re- they will re- recover the cables and then take them uh, and, and salvage them. There are cases, however, where cables are moved and reused at different locations. That's fair- that's fairly rare though if that had to happen.
0: And one of the big drivers behind new cable construction um, is providing redundant paths to maintain connectivity when cables break. Um, what happens when a cable breaks somewhere in the world? Uh, I mean, I think ge- generally most people don't don't notice, right? But but some places maybe don't have such robust infrastructure.
1: Yeah. So most countries are linked to uh, the world with many different paths, uh, and and so whenever one cable has an outage, generally there's there's no real noticeable impact for the average user in a country. But when you have you know multiple cable uh, cut events, which do happen due to you know uh, weather. Anchors, earthquakes, fishing, whatever. There's main things that can happen to cables and cause outages. If if you lose a larger number, there can, can be some, some some impact then for the, the, the user experience. So there there are there are you know plans or that exist for how how companies plan to, you know, use other other cables as as backups in case their cable does have an outage. But ultimately, the the best way to ensure a high level of service is to have a lot of cables. A larger number of cables gives you the best protection against against an outage.
0: Are, are there places around the world that don't have that redundancy at all?
1: Some spots have just, I think, fewer cables. Uh, one that I think is worth noting is uh, Vietnam, actually. They've got a few number of cables, and the, uh, the sea there, the uh, South China Sea, is, is, is a very shallow, a lot of fishing, so they have a lot of outages of cables re- recently that connect to Vietnam, and so there's plans for more cables, of course, to help to mitigate some, some of that. Um, other places, such as um, like Tonga, for example, they have one cable, they got it a few, years, a few years ago, but that cable had a fault, I think it was two or three years ago, so they had to rely on satellite backup. Um, so even one cable sometimes is a great thing for these islands to have, but uh, getting two would be even better.
0: And uh, before I let you go, let's get something straight. There is a myth that seems to be undying about sharks being a threat to submarine cables, and we at DCK, I want to be clear here, we have been guilty of perpetuating it, unfortunately. Alan as an expert on submarine cables with two decades <laughs> of experience. Tell us, do sharks bite cables and cause network outages?
1: Yes, yeah, so I'm really sorry to tell you this, but um, it's not sharks. The vast majority of cable faults are caused by fishing and anchors. Those are the main causes. Also, you have earthquakes and underwater events like that, um, but sharks, no, they are, they are not are not a cause of cable faults they have they have uh, been they have caused I think zero fault in cables the last 20 years so there is no risk for sharks trying to eat any of your delicious bandwidth anytime soon
0: but so it's, it seems that our the the West's addiction to to sushi is uh, in conflict with 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 our addiction to the internet
1: could be so um, I don't have any really, really uh, you know guidance for you here to but uh, I think I think the cables are, are going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> just uh,
0: just drawing a weird uh, weird parallel there. That's <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, Alan, that's all I have. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you for having me. It was great to be here.